so it's, it's interesting when you think about that because there had to be something to galvanize these people, to, to come together at a time during the American Revolution in order for them to come together. And what was that? You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are with Mr. Robert Riles, a public historian. Uh, this is our second episode, Robert. Robert, for our listeners, has a master's in library science and a master's in history coming from Florida State. So welcome, Robert. Uh, we're glad to have you back. Thank you, Eric, and, I, and please don't hold that Florida State against me. We're, we're glad that you bring the credits with you as we talk about the Scotch-Irish Covenant or Presbyterians here in the backcountry of South Carolina uh, prior to the Revolution and during the Revolutionary War and how it's lost to a casual viewer of the Revolutionary War conflict just how much they played a role in turning back uh, British domination in, this, in the colonies. You're exactly right, Eric. In fact, in 2014, there was a published work by Dr. Rick Shakon and Michael Scoggins, the late historian of York County, titled The Great Awakening and South Carolina Backcountry Revolutionaries. I believe so, that was the name of the title. So we're talking about York County, South Carolina. That's correct. Okay. My, my apologies. Yes, uh, York County, South Carolina. And that was an academic work that was based on looking at the role of how the Great Awakening movement earlier in the 18th century had inspired religious movements, yes, throughout the South and whatnot, but also how the, the, the seeds of the Great Awakening and this fervent zeal, this fervent approach of taking the scriptures and moving people in such an, an emotional fashion could be done in such a way that it was also a galvanizing force that could characterize the role of religion in such a way that it was like a religious war of good versus evil. And that is where Mike Scoggins' role in this work really comes to light. And Mike used one particular experience of a devout covenanter to really nail home that message. Well, before we get started in, in taking a deeper dive into that, tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and, uh, and how they can reach you. Sure. Well, I'm a public historian by trade, which can mean that I wear multiple hats. In fact, I've been an archivist. I've been a curator in Tallahassee. Uh, I've been an archivist up here in York County. And I also do public programs where I dress up in historic persona and I deliver part of a program with a, a lecture per se. And then behind that lecture, I do a first person interpretation. And the one that I've developed for this particular topic focuses on the research that Rick Shakon and Michael Scoggins I thought I was uh, in the audience when you did one the other day at uh, Kings Mountain. That was very good, and I, I encourage any listeners that are looking for a, a public historian to give uh, that type of lecture, I encourage them to get a hold of you. So how would they get a hold of you? I appreciate that, yes. 
For those who are interested in this program, people can get a hold of me by my email, which is rylesr at gmail.com. That's spelled R-Y-A-L-S-R at gmail.com. Very good. Well, so I'm going to sit back and let you tell me uh, a little bit about the Covenanters and, and, uh, and their history here. Well, in a nutshell, the Covenanters, they were what you might call radicalized Presbyterians, or that is how the Presbyterian Synod up in Philadelphia perceived them to be. Let me backtrack a little bit on that. The Presbyterian faith, and for that matter, the other Protestant denominations that we are familiar with, the Baptists, the, the Methodists, uh, and so on, all those came about because of this split as, as a result of the need to reform the Catholic Church. And of course, the earliest proponent of this was Martin Luther, in which he actually was the first to break off from the Catholic Church and form his own church. That began the Protestant Reformation, what we know as the Protestant Reformation. Luther kind of opened the door for other reformers right. to make a play. One of those being the most in influential was John Calvin. And there was one follower of John Calvin whose name was Knox. Last name was Knox, John Knox, in which uh, Knox brought that tenet of the reform beliefs of looking at the scriptures themselves as a means of salvation, not necessarily going through uh, a pope, per se, of eliminating the pope as the head of the church, per right. se. Right. And also reforming the, the body itself, so it's a little bit more, I don't want to say egalitarian, but there was more of an elected structure. That, that certainly is one big component of the Presbyterian faith. I mean, you, you have your electors who are elected in different positions. Uh, some would characterize the, the Presbyterians as uh, being full of committees. If, if, if you're not a... It, if you want to do something in the Presbyterian Church, it has to go through a committee first. But that is part of the democratic process right. of that. And so that is something that, that evolved over a period of time, this, this new type of structure and this new type of belief system where it was, it was more about we are all children of God and we do not go through a papal authority in order to talk to God or to receive instruction about our salvation. We do not receive those dictates. However, there was one particular Protestant sect that emerged during this time that was probably closer in line to the Catholic Church, but there were two fundamental differences between the Catholic Church and this church, which became known as the Church of England. The Anglican Church. The Anglican Church. The Church of England, or the Anglican Church as it is known, was founded by King Henry VIII. And we all know that King Henry VIII had uh, a, a series of wives, right? Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. That's how you remember what happened to King Henry's wives, but I digress. The first wife, 
happen at Aragon, uh, could not bear Henry's sons. All right, so he looked towards this, well, this, this younger maiden, Anne Boleyn, as a, as a possibility of bearing him male heirs, because that's what you needed to do in order to perpetuate the royal line. But the problem was, was Henry was Catholic, and within the Catholic Church, you have to get permission from the Catholic Church in order to have your marriage annulled. Well, this was a time where the Pope and the King were kind of competing over who was going to hold power within the religious domain. Henry wanted it his way, the Pope wanted it his way, Henry said, give me my divorce and my annulment. The Pope said, no way. And so it got to the point where Henry said, okay, fine, you can have your church. I'm going to establish my church, which became the Church of England, in which he made himself head of. And of course, in the Church of England or the Anglican Church, you have this tolerance for not necessarily the annulment of the marriage, but an actual divorce. All right, so that in a very crude kind of nutshell explains how the Church of England was formed and for, for what reason, the mm -hmm. background for mm -hmm. it. At the same time, some of the uh, bureaucratic and administrative functions of the Church of England really reflected the same kind of organization as the Catholic Church. You still had your bishops, you still had your clerics, and of course, the Church of England being something where the, the, the head of the church was the king, there was a, you know, a, a state control over the church itself. And so to perpetuate funding for building new church buildings and paying the salaries of the clerics within the Anglican church, um, the, the, the king and the state and the parliament allowed certain things to happen, which eventually would cause some problems, which we can elaborate on a little bit more if you like. Let's concentrate, I guess uh, we could get into a whole, whole other thing on that, but let's, let's concentrate on the covenanters and how they were different than the Presbyterian Synod here mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. Well, here's the thing. Because it didn't sound like they got along with anybody. No. The, the Covenanters really were a religious sect among themselves. Uh, they were fervent, fervent believers in what was known as the Solemn League and Covenants. That was a, an organization that was formed back in the 18th century, around 1743, in which religious toleration was granted to the Scottish, specifically the Church of Scotland, to allow them to worship as they please. That was a promise that was made by the English king and the parliament. It was an acknowledgement. You can worship as you please with the understanding that the Church of England was still the preeminent official religion of the British Empire. Uh, so they come over to uh, they come over to America. 
Well, uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting. They have a long history, the, the Presbyterians, the, both the moderates and what would, uh, what would be the Covenanters. The, the Covenanters really were focused in lower, the counties of Lower Scotland. They were not the Highlanders, not the Highlander Scots that you think of in, in kilts. You know, these were more along the lines of... Um, these were the guys in the trenches between the British and the Scottish. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so these are the ones that were actually fighting. <laughs> they right. were hiding and, up in the mountains. Yes, All yes. Right. And, uh, and, and they also, uh, th these particular uh, Scots who were Presbyterians, and some of them moderate, some of them Covenanters, um, also lived in the northern counties of England. Right there, they were right there on the border between both. Okay. And because of England's enclosure laws, those Scots were basically forced off of their lands in Lower Scotland and Upper England and forced to migrate to the Ulster Plantation in what is today Northern Ireland. And the purpose of that was to attempt to make all of Ireland, to convert all of Ireland from being a Catholic faith to becoming a Protestant one. Well, it didn't work very well. <laughs> Instead, the, 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 the Irish who were there, who were staunchly Catholic, hated the Presbyterians. And the overlords who were there in Ireland, who were responsible for the oversight of all of this huge influx of Scots-Irish as they would come to be known, didn't particularly care for them either. And so the Scotch-Irish themselves kind of became this marginalized people. They became more insular because they were being persecuted from all different sides over a period of time. And then, of course, you have the Covenanters who, because of their fervent beliefs that the Presbyterian faith is the one, true, only Christian doctrine that really matters, of course, you're going to butt heads with the Anglican authorities and then, of course, with the Irish, and then of course with your more moderate cousins within the Presbyterian faith, and for that matter, any other denominations. Mm -hmm. But they were quite fervent and devout in this. They were what you might call very literal-minded zealots of the Presbyterian, the tenets of the Presbyterian faith. So when you say zealots, it comes to mind that they, uh, I read this somewhere, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because you are the expert here, and I'm just uh, kind of in the audience. But uh, when you say zealots, they looked at every government on the face of the earth as being subservient to God, right? God, they listened to God. They didn't listen to the government. So if they felt God was leading them one way, that's, that's the way they went. And they were, there was no ifs, ands, or buts because they were dealing with their salvation of their souls. 
right? And uh, everything here is temporary in their mind. That's exactly right. You, you nailed it right on the head because that was something that was fundamental and foremost, that God, the almighty God, is head of the church right. and is the creator of his domain, right? And that all authority, secular, religious, political, everything, comes from God. We are all equal here. I think that's an important tenet, especially when you think in terms of uh, the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church. You couldn't get married without having, having them say you're married, right? That's exactly right. And, and, and of, that, uh, that really flew in the face of these, these, uh, these covenanters or Scotch-Irish in general, Presbyterians in general, but especially the covenanters, uh, to have an affront to say that uh, something is as important as marriage had to go through a government. Yes, the Marriage Investory Acts. They, they, they stipulated that any and all marriages that were performed within the British Empire had to be performed by an Anglican priest mm. Mm. in order for them to be recognized as legal binding marriages within the state. And not only that, but you also had to pay a marriage license for that. You had to pay for the services that were rendered. And that those payments that were made to the priest went to construct other Anglican churches and to pay the salaries of the priests. Now, if you're a Presbyterian or if you're a Methodist or Baptist or any other faith, how's that going to make you feel? Right. You know? Now, if you're a covenanter, how is that really going to make you feel? Right. So it was. It was a slap in the face to the covenanters that this was something that they had to be subservient to. So what did they do? They got married within their own congregations anyway, performed by their own ministers. They didn't care. And when it got to the point where colonial authorities began to put their their thumbs down on these type of practices and, and began to want to collect those church tithes and, and taxes, uh, they simply uh, thumbed their noses at colonial authorities and moved on. And so that was one of the reasons why they eventually immigrated to the colonies. Of course, when they got here, uh, the more moderate wing of the Presbyterians that had been here for a few generations in the colonies, they didn't really know what to do with the Covenanters when they got here. Because this more moderate synod in, in Philadelphia, by the way, a synod is simply uh, a, a term that refers to the organizational body of the Presbyterian mm -hmm. Church. Okay. All right. There has to be some level of organization, but it's designed to, just to keep order. Okay. But these more moderate Presbyterians, what they did was they simply took this approach of going along to get along. Sure, they didn't, they didn't care much for this policy of the Anglican Church going about and being the official 
state religion. They didn't care much for the king being the head of the church either. But they kept that sentiment somewhat private. Mm -hmm. All right, they, they didn't go about preaching mm -hmm. that right. this right. was inherently wrong or that the king was, was evil you know, or could be likened to the Antichrist, which is what some would do really? during okay. the war. So a as a consequence of that, these covenanters that had settled in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania ran into conflicts with the moderates, and it got to the point where the covenanters had to pick up and move. Again, just like what they had done back in Ireland. And so where do you go? You go to the back country. There was one particular devout Scotch-Irish covenanter whose name was Reverend Alexander Craighead, and he was a third-generation covenanter, and he was a very interesting figure at that time. He had been forced, he and his congregants had moved from Philadelphia to the back country of Virginia, where they tried to establish their own settlement and their own way of worship. But even there, they got into conflicts with the local population and they had to move further south into the Carolinas. Eventually, Craighead and his congregants settled in sparsely populated Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. And it was there where Craighead found a home. Okay. And he was the uh, first um, minister for Sugar Creek, the Sugar Creek Congregation, which is located six miles outside of uptown Charlotte today. In fact, that church, Craighead's church, is still there. It's not on the exact same spot where the first meeting house was located, right. but for all intents and purposes, that uh, congregation is still there. And they didn't call them churches. They actually called them meeting houses, They called right? them meeting houses. That's because exactly they couldn't right. call them a church. They couldn't call them churches they, because, they, because they weren't. Anglican. That's right. That's right. Well, isn't that interesting? Sugar Creek, that's on the north side of Charlotte. Uh, if you go up 85, is it coming it's right off 85 on Sugar Creek Road? Well, probably the easiest way to get to it is to take 77, uh -huh. then take 277, the loop, and then get off the exit for Tryon Street, take Tryon. And then when you get to the city center of Tryon, where the Bank of America building stands. That was the, that was the city center back then in the revolution. That was this, and that is another interesting story, where okay. the courthouse once stood. Right, right. Uh, then from there, you drive six miles north, okay. north Tryon Street, and Sugar Creek, well, they renamed it Sugaw. I don't know why, but they uh -huh. named it Sugaw uh, Presbyterian Church, but it's Sugar. I got gotcha. you. Uh, Sugar Creek Presbyterian Church is, is there today. And there are three large cemeteries that are there. Um, the smallest one is one that has Craighead's grave there. But Craighead, he really planted the seeds of dissension in this area for other covenanters to come in and pick up on. He was preaching anti-British rhetoric before the Really, and like Moses, he never he may have seen the promised land to some degree, but never had the opportunity to cross over the valley and and get there. Uh, he died in 1766, 
long before the American Revolution. But his influential role in establishing this anti-colonial sentiment was something that uh, had taken seed hmm. throughout Mecklenburg County, which was a much larger area than what it is today. Uh, there were seven sister Presbyterian churches in uh, Mecklenburg County, which included all of Mecklenburg County, all of Cabarrus County, all of Union County, North Carolina, back then. So there were seven of them, and that is the type of rhetoric that is being espoused to the population. So, you know, if you grow up hearing these type of sermons or, or this type of rhetoric or this type of belief system, then that is something that inherently becomes part of you and your psychology. That's important to know, too, because it wasn't just a, he came down here, he preached it, and then all of a sudden they went to war, that sort of thing. We're talking generations at that, at that point, That's growing exactly up in this area, right. being inculcated to that way of thinking, that belief system, that sort of thing. So when the British came in and ran up against that belief system, number one, it was foreign to them, right? They didn't understand where they were coming from. Uh, how can you do that? Because they were, they were grew up in a different belief system, right? So these two belief systems came and butted heads. And, uh, yes, they did. Absolutely, they did. Yes, uh, Alexander Craighead and his congregation, they came down to this area in the 1750s. Okay. So really, if you're thinking about it, this 1750s, then you have the French and Indian War, mm -hmm. and then you have the American Revolution. So there's a lot that's going on between that time span. Mm -hmm. And it was during the French and Indian War that you have a lot of forced migrations into this area. So you're going to have more Covenanters that had marginalized on the Virginia frontier that are coming down into mm. this area. Right, right. And at the same time, you also have relative, quote-unquote, newcomer Covenanter denominations like Reverend William Martin and his congregates coming up through Charleston from the South, coming up that way, mm -hmm. not wanting to establish themselves uh, among those Anglicans <laughs> down there in the low country of South Carolina, but finding, finding their home in the back country of South Carolina where... And the governments of those particular colonies were happy that they, they settled here because it was a buffer between them and the Cherokee yeah, it was kind of like an uneasy agreement right. <laughs> between the two. Right. You know, right. it's, it's like if you guys stay in the back country, then, you know, that's fine. You, you guys stay there and uh, worship as you please, um, even though, you know, obviously there were times where, you know, the colonial authorities did try to do some overreach and the same with the, the Anglicans. They mm -hmm. tried to mm -hmm. you know, overreach into back country. But there was this implied understanding of, of that place. And the Anglicans, you know, they didn't care much for this group of people. There was one Anglican minister, his name was Charles Wood Mason, who had some pretty nasty things to say about the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, especially those living around the Hanging Rock right. settlement. Right. Uh, he referred to them as a lazy, heathen, sluttish type of people that uh, delighted in their own pursuits and that they were just a bunch of ne'er-do-wells. If you ever have the opportunity to read through Charles Wood Mason's diary and his accounts of 
the, the backwoods Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, it's really, you come across some really interesting and funny type of insights that he brings to the conversation. And uh, they didn't particularly care much for him either. <laughs> if you read through them and you take it for what it is and who it's coming from, he doesn't seem like a very happy person. <laughs> no, he does. It's like I got relegated to this backwoods place and I hated it all the time. <laughs> so, but you're speaking of Hanging Rock, he did perform marriages at that Hanging Rock. He, he uh, married 300 couples at one time. He did. He so, did. And they used him during the regulator movement to petitioned the government to, to help them out with some of the problems that they had in the backcountry of South Carolina, which they needed more government. You know, if you had a problem with with uh, your neighbor stealing your pig, well, you had to go all the way to Charleston to get that settled. And he helped them write the petitions to try to get government, uh, centers of government uh, more accessible in the backcountry. So. He, he had some positive things, but he sure didn't like them. <laughs> he, he didn't like the backcountry. He didn't like them. So, so you talk about William Martin, and you've talked about Craighead, and you've talked about from, from Hanging Rock, you've got Chester County, Lancaster, into Union County in North Carolina, up to Cabarrus and Mecklenburg over to the west right there. So this whole little area, and then within the confines of that, you got York County, the new acquisition district, and you have the Catawba Indians. So we're talking, we're, we're talking a five to six county area just in this, this northern part of South Carolina, centrally located northern part of South Carolina into the southern part of uh, North Carolina in that Piedmont region. And uh, that's where all of this happened, right? Yeah, and you know, today we, we can, we, we think about this geographical area which we just generically called the, the Charlotte Metropolitan Area. And, and we think of a densely populated metropolitan area today, right? Right. Well, back then, not so much. Mm. It was fragmented. Right. We had small little pockets here and there that were scattered hither and yon. And the centers of where people would meet would be where? The meeting houses, right. okay. that became the centers of community, of ways of life, of people coming together. And it wasn't just church, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was their culture, it was, it was their way. Long before Charlotte was founded as Charlotte Town, there were the churches. Those churches that Craighead was a part of were there in the 1750s up through uh, early 1760s. Charlottetown was not put on the map until 1768. Okay, all right. All right, and Mecklenburg County was not established as a county until 1762. Okay. So it gives you some perspective of what came first, the churches with the people came first. So those became your basis for this uh, understanding of community. Right. But still, they are fragmented across a very large geographical swath. So it's, it's interesting when you think about that because there had to be something to galvanize these people, to, to come together at a time during the American Revolution in order for them to come together. And what was that? Uh, well, <laughs> what that was, was 
uh, May 12, 1780, when Charlestown had fallen, and then not long after that, at the end of the month, we had this one horrific event called Buford's Massacre, May 29, 1780. This is the Waxhaws that happened in, right? Buford's Massacre happened in the Waxhaws, right at that North Carolina, South Carolina gray area that has changed and morphed over the years and stuff. But that Waxhaw settlement is right in the middle of this Scotch-Irish Covenanter type of influence that you were, you were talking about, correct? You're exactly right. The, the battle itself took place in what is present-day Buford's Crossroads, which is nine miles east of present-day Lancaster, South Carolina. It was a battle between Colonel, Colonel Abraham Buford and his army, which is 350 Continentals from Virginia, who had marched down from Virginia, and their original mission was to go to Charleston and provide aid and relief to the Southern Department. And they were on their way to do that. They had, they had not learned that Charlestown had been captured. And when they did, you know, they were over halfway there. And so what they had to do is they had to turn around and for a 350 person army with wagons and baggage and everything that goes along with an army, you can't exactly turn on a dime and just easily retreat back to Hillsville. Their mission had changed. Part of the mission was that they had to retrieve John Rutledge, president of South Carolina, and rescue him from British forces at that time. Rutledge had managed to sneak out of Charleston and into uh, the, the Low Country, and that was Buford's mission, was to safely escort John Rutledge back to North Carolina where he could still represent South Carolina's interest in exile, okay? Now, as Buford is in the process of making his turn, there are spies, Tory spies, in the low country, and yes, some in the back country as well, that are keeping tabs on Buford's army, and they are reporting back to British forces. And then Cornwallis says, there's one more army that's left there in the back country that we need to take care of. And so what does he do? He, he sends the Englishman, Bannister Charlton, and his uh, aggressive mounted cavalry, known as the British Legion, uh, to the back country to chase after uh, Buford. And Tarleton, he was a very aggressive 26-year-old British cavalry officer who was uh, very ambitious, and he was also very aggressive in his policies. Now, it was there on the battlefield at uh, Buford's Crossroads where he told Buford to you know, surrender. Buford did not back down. He said, I'm going to make my stand here. What happened was uh, a battle ensued. Buford blundered in that battle by telling his men to hold their fire until the British came within a very short range and then to open fire, presumably so that he could get the most effect of a line of fire on the charging men, but it didn't work. His men didn't have time to prime load and fire their muskets again on the cavalry and members of the infantry of uh, the British Legion. 
and it easily turned into a rout. Now sometime during that battle, Tarleton's horse got shot, and by the accounts, it appeared that Tarleton had been hit. And so his men presumably thought Tarleton had died, and that sent them into a fighting frenzy. And of course, during the fog of war, if you don't have a commander that's giving you directives on what to do, chaos ensues, and what happened next was just bloody and brutal where the Legion would just continue in their efforts to cut down men uh, and bayonet them while they're laying on the ground, even as the men were holding up their hands and crying quarter, which is the 18th century equivalent of, I surrender, give me, I'm at your mercy. So with these men that were surrendering, they were still getting run through with bayonets and, and getting run through with large powder sabers, and out of Buford's 350-man army, 113 men were killed, and a substantial number were wounded. About 75% of Buford's army had basically been put out of commission, either, wow. either dead or wounded. Wow. And then they were taken, uh, some who could be transported off the battlefield to Waxhaw, the Waxhaw Meeting House, which had been turned into a makeshift hospital. So people who witnessed this event and the fact that men were saying, I surrender and being cut down anyway, well, that became the rallying cry for people to come together at a time of need out of concern that what happened there is going to happen to them in their own settlements. But it was going to need voices to carry that message through. And those voices were the voices of these devout, radical covenanters like Reverend William Martin. Very good. How can people reach you if they want to, to take advantage of your skills? Well, they can reach me at my email address, which is rylesr at gmail.com. And that spelling of the last name is R-Y-A-L-S-R -S at gmail.com. Well, very good.